1: welcome to the podcast about investing in startups where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible and those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts your host is nick moran and this is the full ratchet
0: welcome back to tfr today the long-awaited mg siegler joins us MG is an investor at GV and is one of the most frequently requested guests by listeners. He is a consumer tech expert who has written extensively about Apple media platforms and user experience. In this episode, we discuss his areas of expertise and his thoughts on the streaming wars, Disney, the future of mobile, social media, and the evolution of user interaction across voice and even thought-activated platforms. Here's the enlightening discussion with M.G. Siegler of G.V. M.G. Siegler joins us today from San Francisco. M.G. is a general partner at G.V. G.V. is a San Francisco-based venture firm with investments in Uber, Nest, Control Labs, and RetailMeNot, among many others. Prior to G.V., M.G. was a founding partner at Crunch Fund. He also reported on startups and tech as a writer at both TechCrunch and VentureBeat and still regularly writes at his blog, 500-ish. MG, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So what, what is the origin of the name 500-ish? I've always wondered. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so that that came about, I don't even know how many years ago at this point, Maybe maybe almost five years ago, four or five years ago. So basically... I had been continuing to write and blog, host, as you noted, my uh, reporting career just on my own sites. And you know, I've used a bunch of different tools over the years, as you can imagine, but we're actually, GV is an investor in Medium. And so when we were getting more involved with Medium, I decided to set up a publication over there, but I needed to come up with a, a new name for it beyond what I had been using in the past. And so One thing that I liked, or at least in my head, I I thought I would like was the notion that if I could keep things sort of brief in writing, then I would do it more often, which, you know, I used to do, of course, for a living. But in the sort of VC world, there's just a lot that pulls it at you time-wise, time constraint-wise. And so uh, it's hard to fit writing into those, you know, times of the day when you're not doing something else. And so I I thought if I could keep it brief, (laughs) I'm sure you can (laughs) then five hundred ish words, you know, was sort of the the idea that I came up with. If I keep sort of the uh, the post length to around five hundred words, I very rarely do. But then I thought that would sort of inspire me to to write more too.
0: Love it, love it. So talk us through that transition. So you you were working, you know, as a writer, and then you know, CrunchFund came about. Can you walk us through what, what happened there and how that all came together?
1: Sure. So, you know, rewinding a little bit farther back from that, a lot of people ask, you know, how did you make the, the transition from sort of being a reporter to being a VC? Yes. Sort of the longer story said briefly is that I never intended to be a reporter. I sort of stumbled into that world. It's not like I studied in college and go to journalism school or anything. I stumbled into that world because I've been working actually as a web developer and just writing about technology on the side. I've always had an interest in writing and, you know, I've done it for a long, long time dating back to school, of course. So I'd just been, you know, taking what I was doing for a living and sort of writing about interesting things or what I thought would be interesting things in technology. And that's what caught the eye of people up in San Francisco, you know, notably uh, VentureBeat sort of reached out to me and wanted to see if I if I would be interested in writing for them. I thought at the time that there's no way you can make a living sort of blogging, you know, compared to what like, uh, you know, you would do as a web developer or whatnot. And so Uh, I said I would do it on the side. And eventually, that pretty quickly morphed into um, doing it full time. And so I was at VentureBeat for, I think, a year and a half. And then eventually, I moved over to TechCrunch. You know, once I moved up to San Francisco. And yeah, I was there for for a while through the sale to AOL. So that was back in 2010. AOL acquired TechCrunch. And I stayed for about a year. But as I was sort of after that transaction happened, I started, started to think about what was next. And a lot of VCs had reached out to me mainly with the idea that, you know, they knew that the company I was at at TechCrunch had been acquired. And so they thought, well, maybe this guy's going to go out and start his own new publication, start his own new tech blog or whatnot. And so a bunch of VCs reached out to see what my thinking was. And those conversations sort of, you know, evolved over about a year span. Like I said, I stayed around for about a year at at AOL, at TechCrunch under the AOL brand. And I was in no real hurry to make a move. But uh, as those conversations with various VCs started to to continue to happen it's they sort of morphed into this well what you were doing at TechCrunch wasn't all that different from what we do uh, at least at you know at a very high level on a sort of initial basis right you're sure. looking for interesting startups i was looking for them interesting startups to cover to write about vcs obviously look for interesting startups to potentially invest in yep. and so it became you know a, an interesting conversation about well do you think you could maybe join a VC firm as someone who's who's looking at investing in startups? And eventually, I got far enough down the road in those conversations that I I knew I was going to make the jump, and I and I went to Mike Errington, who was the founder of TechCrunch, and Heather Hardy, who was the CEO there, to say you know I was likely to make a move you know in the in the coming months over to the VC side of things. And that's when. You know, I think Mike mentioned. Well, it just so happens I've been thinking about sort of starting my own fund, and you know we're potentially going to set something up with AOL as the LP in it, and so that's sort of how Crunch Fund came about.
0: Wow, very cool. Who, who was the the first investor that was a, an avid reader of yours that saw your potential as an investor?
1: There were a few different people who reached out all around the same time. You know, like I said, sort of those conversations started to form initially around like, you know, what are you doing? Actually, one of the first people who reached out to me was Kevin Rose, who was the founder of Dig back in the day. And this all comes full circle because he was actually the person who eventually, you know, we can get to this in a second, but he's the person who brought me over to, to GV, to Google Ventures uh, back in 2013. And so it was actually Kevin, though, who reached out very early after the AOL deal. To say, hey, whatever you're doing next, we'd love to chat about backing it. That was the one that that sticks out in my mind. I did have a bunch of conversations with you know VC firms, you know, and in, in they range from everything from yeah, investing in what I was potentially going to do next. I honestly didn't have a plan to do anything, <laughs> uh, you know, as doubt. <laughs> I did start to think about it a little bit, but I had no real plan of like launching some big new media entity. Uh, <laughs> maybe that made the the transition to VC even easier since I didn't have a grand plan of starting my own thing.
0: Love it. So, talk us through a bit on Crunch Fund itself. You know, founding partner of that, and then how you made the move to to GV.
1: Yeah. So, Crunch Fund was started. Like I said, Mike Arrington, another guy, Pat Gallagher, who was the of the three of us. He was the one who had actually been a VC. So, I think that was pretty important to have her on the table <laughs> uh, in starting a fund. And so, Mike, Pat, and I uh, kicked things off. I guess it was twenty eleven you know, I think some of the early thesis was, of course, Mike and I had both been writing for a long time, like started TechCrunch. And then I had been there for, you know, five plus years at that point, and had built up quite a sort of following amongst people who were following early stage technology companies. And so, you know, we thought there would be an interesting symbiotic relationship between, you know, continuing to write about startups, but also potentially investing in them. Obviously, there was the conflict of interest nature of it. And we thought we could do you know an, a good job of of sort of making those lines clear and just being transparent about talking about you know if if something was going to be an investment potentially you know disclose that and i think you know it sounded like in the earlier days AOL was on board with that as i mentioned they were an you know the anchor lp in the fund but then things started to sort of get a little bit more murky as uh, i would say some other potentially competitors in the journalist world you know just started to Raise eyebrows about potentially, you know, investing and, and writing at the same time and, and the the conflicts around that, you know, as there just became more heat around that topic, it became more and more clear that it'd just be easier, I think, for both sides to just for us to do it independently. I mean, obviously, as I said, AOL was still the anchor investor in it, but that's eventually what led to us no longer writing for TechCrunch.
0: Got it. Got it. And so to- did that happen sort of in in concert with GV and, and your introductions there, or, or was did you kind of? Yeah,
1: cease- that, that was a little bit later. Uh, you know, CrunchFund was 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 a fascinating experience for sure. It's still going. It happens to be rebranded now. As as you may know, Mike Arrington also left and did his own um, yep. new fund, Arrington XRP. Pat Gallagher is still doing Crunch Fund, but it's now you know he's rebranded it. It's called Tuesday. But he's still actively managing. Obviously, Crunch Fund has a lot of portfolio companies. There were two different funds, I believe, raised, and so he's still managing all that. I'm in regular communication with him, obviously, about some of those companies. And you know, I think honestly, we did a, a great job, certainly, in timing and sort of launching what was Crunch Fund uh, off the ground. You know, we we an investor in a number of companies that some had exits already, some are still still out there going. You know, like things like Airbnb, which is you know now like a was back then already a massive company, right, and there was some like you know debate about what the model should be because we were in early stage. It was around a thirty million dollar fund we were going to be doing early stage seed investing, but we had these relationships obviously with many entrepreneurs mm-hmm. and other v c s because of our our experience on the writing side of the equation and so as these opportunities came up to do some of these later stage deals uh Uber being another one you know we obviously thought about like does this make sense actually for the fund but it was a pretty easy call to say like i mean these are great companies let's let's for sure invest obviously we're not we don't have as much money as, as some large funds to invest in these companies. But I think, you know, there's a potential for a good outcome here. And I, I don't think we could have imagined, though, that, you know, these companies would become 30, 50, you know, up to potentially a hundred billion dollar companies eventually. And so those investments, even though they were pretty late stage, end up looking really, really good over time. But that's sort of, you know, just the, the times in which we live. Yeah. And so anyway, so yeah, at Crunch Fund for about 18 months. We had started then, you know, we had basically deployed the first fund and we're starting to think about going out to raise that second fund. Concurrently, that's when Kevin Rose reached out to me again to say, hey, you know, I'm at GV now at Google Ventures now. We're actually looking to build up our team. That's that's looking at early stage and seed investing. You know, would love the opportunity to work together. If you wanted to come over and, and sort of meet this team and, and you know hear about our plan. You know, that was a at the time a three hundred million dollar a year fund calling versus you know what we had what we had at Crunch Fund, which was a thirty million dollar fund. And you know, I thought that it seemed like a natural transition point if I was going to go make a jump to to do another. To another firm because again we were just starting to think about sort of kicking off the second fundraise, talking with Kevin a bit more and talking to the various different people at at GV at the time. It made a lot of sense to to just make that jump, and uh, here I am six plus years later. Wow,
0: amazing! And MG, you know, I've spoken uh, with your colleague Rick Clow a little bit about this, but there there seems to be some confusion about the affiliation with with Google. I know that there's there's yeah. multiple venture funds that you know, are affiliated with Google in some way. So can you briefly talk us through how is GV connected with Google now?
1: Yeah, sure. So GV has been around 10 years. This is the 10th year anniversary of the of the fund. And when it was being set up, I think, you know, Google was looking around the the landscape, the corporate venture landscape and, you know, the Intel capitals of the world and some of the bigger companies that were out there at the time. And saying, like, oh well, what they're doing with, you know, investing in, in the ecosystem is interesting. And I think they wanted to participate in that, but they were being Google trying to think about a different way of, of approaching that. And as you know, Google makes a lot of money every single quarter, every single year. And so capital was not the issue, but really thinking about like how you build a world class venture fund, you know, from having only one LP, a corporate LP, as as the base of it. And the easy call there, in hindsight, obviously easy, but maybe not so easy at the time, was to set it up like a straightforward venture fund. So our mandate is to make a return on the capital that Google gives us. It's mm-hmm. not to be in nature. It's not to sell companies to Google. It's not to you know be a pipeline for various BD deals. Uh, you know that, that Google and the startups can execute you know some sometimes it happens where google will acquire one of the portfolio companies but it happens you know just as often with with non google companies i mean certainly far more often with non google as a whole but you know individual companies like you you mentioned control labs facebook just acquired that company and so yep. you know there's all sorts of non strategic stuff that that's happening and and that's why it was set up that way that said google does have as you noted a bunch of other sort of investment vehicles and so some of them are strategic in nature. You know, most notably, they have, you know, their own balance sheet that they can invest out of. I think you know, they have sort of some very high profile ones like Magic Leap and, and SpaceX that they've invested in, you know, directly. And so uh, when they want to do strategic, they can do that. They have, you know, in the subsequent years since then, they've had other sort of smaller funds that, that, have, that have rolled out. Gradient Ventures is another one that sort of focuses on machine learning and AI there's also, of course, Google Capital, which is also one of our sister companies now under the alphabet uh, umbrella of companies. So they're also independent, but they do more um, later stage and, and growth equity style investing. So there's a few different arms within Google that have the capacity to invest in different companies. But I'd like to think that ours is you know, by far the most straightforward as an actual venture fund.
0: Got it. Got it. And then what is sort of your domain within GV and how do you guys divide up responsibility?
1: So I mainly focus on the very nebulous consumer space, uh, but <laughs> yeah. you know that's uh, that can encompass basically everything these days, more or less. You know, when again, when I started six years ago at GV, it was much more straightforward. It was you know find early stage consumer companies. You know, and, and back then it was it was largely you know apps, new mobile apps that were coming out to invest in, and over time that's morphed for a few reasons. First and foremost, we've Fund has just grown in size, and so we're not doing a ton of early stage investing anymore. Both because we have a portfolio of over three hundred companies now, and so we just couldn't scale it to a thousand companies if we kept doing all of these early stage investments. And also, we have a well, we have a large team. They do. We have a team that helps out our portfolio companies a lot, and those people couldn't scale to try to help a thousand companies. I think that it wouldn't behoove either side for that. So we've largely, you know, moved up the chain, as it were, and started doing a little bit. Later stage, but I still try to focus on consumer. But again, that world has sort of changed a lot. It's not as common, you know, to have breakout consumer apps like on the iPhone, like you did back then. And so now, like a good example of an investment is Slack, where uh, it's sort of the "quote unquote" consumerization of IT. Right? Stuart Butterfield and Cal Henderson was on stage yesterday at Disrupt talking about you know, when they started Slack and sort of they came to it with a very consumer mindset, because that's sort of the, you know, they'd come from a video game, trying to build a video game time, and they built Flickr back in the day. And so they had a very consumer mindset, but they were trying to approach this new enterprise tool with a consumer mindset. Now that's a very popular and, you know, potentially lucrative thing to do. But you know, so, so anyway, so I skirt the lines between various different segments, but I try to rope it all into consumer.
0: Yeah. So let's talk more about consumer tech. You've written a lot, about consumer experience about about Apple specifically about media let's just start off with with Apple how do you think Johnny Ive's departure affects Apple
1: I think it doesn't have a massive impact in the short term I think that Apple the way that that it's set up is just a very long view company and so a lot of what they do is is you know build things and set things up to be built out over, you know, a multi-year span. And yeah. so, you know, the things that we're seeing that were released, you know, most recently, the new iPhones and, and whatnot, they were, you know, they've been in the pipeline for a few years already, and and they were in the pipeline when Johnny I was still there, right? And so, we're not going to see really the the ultimate outcome of, of sort of the departure of Johnny I for another two, three years, I would imagine. I'm sure there will be some things at the seams that, that are different and you know, maybe there's just different design choices that are made, you know, by the by the new people in charge. But I do think it'll be like a two or three year lag time until we actually see like real fundamental changes in and maybe even like the design language and nature of what Apple has been doing.
0: Agreed. Do you have a sense for or do you have an opinion on what will be some of the most valuable consumer tech companies by market cap, let's say three to five years from now?
1: Basically, I think over the past two to three years, we've seen, you know, these handful of companies that have sort of broken away from the pack, right? So we have, you know, the the quote unquote fang companies yep. that are all north of $500 billion in terms of market cap. And, you know, a few of them have skirted the, the $1 trillion line. You know, it's interesting that Microsoft has been in the lead, right, for at least a few several months now. Yeah. And that and, and Apple keeps going up and up and over that line and, and Amazon's right there Google's you know a little bit farther behind and then Facebook's a little bit farther behind that and so I would imagine that those handful of companies continue to be the big ones in in that sort of time horizon. I know that's sort of a boring answer, but that's the nature of how big that they are mm-hmm. and can other get that big I mean it's hard to see, any company right now that's sort of at the level below that, you know, you have like the sales forces of the world and some of the newer public companies like Uber and Slack and stuff. And so, I mean, there's opportunities for them to grow into those, but I think it's going to be a longer time horizon for for them to sort of break if they can, if they can break into sort of the the breakaway pack right now. And obviously, we'll see what happens with all the regulatory talk and you know, environment changes over the next few years, but. As of right now, it looks like those sort of core players are pretty well intact and dug into uh, to the, their places in the market. I don't know what their market cap will be in a few years. Obviously, that depends on a lot of different macro things. You know, are they all two trillion dollar companies? That seems hard to believe that they mm-hmm. could grow at that scale at this size that they're at. But I wouldn't be shocked if they're all you know just north of a trillion dollars by then, bearing any you know major recession or you know downturn in the market that could impact. Everyone, right?
0: right? Yeah, you mentioned Fang. Uh, one of which, one of those companies is Netflix. I want to talk streaming a little bit? So, right now in the streaming market, we have sort of a, a fragmented group of services. There's not really one platform to sort of unify the user experience. And we just saw an announcement, I think this past week, that you know Disney. We knew that Disney was announcing their own platform, but they sort of released this trailer and and a bunch of promotion around that. What are your thoughts on sort of the future of streaming and kind of this this group of fragmented services?
1: So there's a lot in there. So Netflix, as you know, Netflix has been, you know, a little bit downtrodden recently, right? Because mm-hmm. they missed their earnings, you know, in the last earnings uh, release. You know, there's there's trepidation. This seems to be going cycles with Netflix because, you know, for a long time, people were worried like that they've accumulated too much debt and they were growing on top of too much debt for all of the content that they're putting in, too much content spend, right? That ended up being pr- a pretty good call, it seems like, in hindsight, given what everyone has noted is entering the market right now and... and you know, promising to spend billions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars on content. And Netflix was there early and doing it. And now they have this corpus of content that they built up over time, which seems to position them really, really well, especially in the world now where you're seeing the people that own some of the legacy content pulling the content out of Netflix, right? Can you imagine if they were doing that and Netflix didn't have, you know, the house of cards, the stranger <laughs> Things, all, all of their sort of now what's considered, I guess, their legacy content? You know, that would be a a whole different equation uh, with regard to them. I think that they're very smart. And so while they are a bit downtrodden right now, I still would certainly not bet against them. I think that they're probably the savviest player in the space. I think the only company that I could see that's better positioned right now from current vantage points would be Disney, just because they have. Such good IP, and they have so much legacy IP, and they have obviously a great leader in Bob Iger, who's also you know very thoughtful and very visionary in terms of the way that that he's been able to execute all his IP deals. Certainly acquiring Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm—hard to beat that catalog. Yeah, I mean it's amazing, and and also just being able to execute on top of those. It's one thing to acquire those, that IP, but like. What they've done, what Kevin Feige has done with the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe is, is, I mean, nothing short of amazing. Yeah. It's so, it's like mind boggling how they've been able to to take so many different properties and weave them together in a cohesive manner. And that's why we're seeing, you know, the the results that they're getting. I mean, they do, Disney absolutely dominates the box office right now, and it's hard to see that ending anytime soon. So I think Disney is positioned really well just because of all of that and the fact that they do have sort of these the multi-channel avenues to get content out there so obviously with disney plus launching that would be the new one but they have theatrical they have their theme parks they have merchandise they have things that that no one else can tie together in the same way so well, i think netflix is is maybe a little bit more forward thinking just because they don't have all of all of the legacy on one side that's a good thing on the other side they don't have all of these different avenues to take their ip to by themselves and so I think Disney, Netflix are the two sort of breakaway folks right now. Obviously, you know, Warner's launching new stuff with, you know, what they're going to do with HBO. I, I'm a little bit wary of that just because I do view HBO as one of like the ultimate greats, just curators. And that, and now it seems like they're they're doing more along the lines of, you know, what sort of the Netflix playbook is or just really what everyone else is trying to do now just get a bunch of content out there to be able to compete for eyeballs and time and i'm pretty skeptical about them being able to scale that, that H, certainly the hbo quality in the way that they're that they're seemingly trying to with hbo max and and some of the other stuff that they're going to be rolling out but they do have they do have a lot of interesting ip and they do have a lot of channels again that they can that they can work with but yeah, I mean, I'm a little bit more skeptical of them. And then there's the pure tech players. Of course, Apple's you know about to launch Apple TV Plus in yeah. um, you November. Know- and they're spending a lot of money, I'm pretty skeptical of what they're doing right now simply because there's so little content that they're actually doing. So it'll be a long time before they can get there. I do think that they made the right call by pricing it so low, but I really think it was the only call because they have so little content. And now, you know, on the flip side, the consumers are going to have to think about what they want to spend money on, and it's not going to be every single one of these services.
0: Right. No, agreed. And you mentioning Apple here, I mean, a number of folks have positioned sort of Apple versus Disney. Um, mm-hmm. and are writing about, you know, who's gonna win between the two. Do you think it's it's a competition between those two or do you think they're different enough and they can stay independent and, and both succeed on their own with in sort of the streaming and, and the broader media approach?
1: Yeah, I think that they're different enough. I know that that's a very enticing sort of comparison right now, especially with Bob Iger obviously just stepping off the board of of Apple, yep. and he's writing his, his book coming out, and, and they've been doing you know the media tour and talking about you know the the time that maybe he thought that Apple and Disney should merge, right, when Steve Jobs was a large shareholder of Disney, and so you know there's all sorts of, of compelling narratives coming out of of that, that's for sure. But the way that they're situated now, I don't view them as being so competitive because. Well, I do think that there'll be they'll be competing for talent in front of the camera and behind the camera. Like they'll be competing for different shows, and and you know that probably is what led to Bob Iger having stepped down from the board more so necessarily than you know what they're doing from a, a broader perspective and with the technology. I just think that they're going to come about it very differently. So as I noted, Disney has all of these channels to be able to to put their content through. Apple has none of the same channels. They're trying to launch Apple TV Plus, which would be obviously a competitor with Disney Plus. But both of those aren't launched yet, so it's TBD. But the other channel that Apple has that Disney does not have is, of course, the Oprah a billion pockets, y'all, right? So, (laughs) so they have their devices in um, in over a billion hands, and that is very compelling. It seems like they're not fully taking advantage of it with what the current strategy is. Again, with Apple TV Plus, they're sort of you know thinking about it in a little bit more old school ways right like getting into your living room and they obviously have the apple tv device and they've had that for a while it's i think would be more compelling if they tried to make a service that was really predicated around you know being on on the iphone because that's that's their advantage right i mean they've they have, they have a, a money advantage they're you know the most profitable company but then they their real advantage that money can't buy at this point is those devices in people's hands. And it's with a very lucrative segment of the market, right? You know, sort of the affluence of, of iPhone buyers and Apple products in general. And so I think that there's a lot of attractive things that they can go after, but it doesn't seem like they're doing that right now. I wouldn't be surprised if that's, you know, something that they, they sort of move more towards down the road. The other thing I would say is that with Apple's strategy in the past, it certainly seemed like that they were not trying to launch their own sort of content service, but instead were trying to do be it you know hardware with Apple TV itself or do some sort of service that could you know combine all of the various different services that are out there, including cable, into a compelling package with a nice UI to be mm-hmm. able to uh, to serve up to customers. And I think, honestly, I think that's what they should do. I know that they had issues with getting everyone on board for obvious reasons. I think people were afraid, the Hollywood players were afraid that you know they would do what they did with iTunes, which is basically take over the music market the music industry, and they would have no say over it. And so there are reasons why that didn't happen. But I think from a consumer perspective, that absolutely needs to happen. i not, not saying that it needs to be Apple, but eventually there's going to be too many services, and we're not going to be able to find what we want to watch, even if we can pay for everything, which obviously everyone is not going to do. And so someone needs to unify all of this. And so I would be more excited for Apple continuing to work on that than what they're doing with the original content.
0: Agreed. It's it's not friendly right now, right? I have uh, HBO Go, Showtime Anytime, Hulu, Netflix. I mean, it, it's it's tough bouncing back and forth between these things from a user standpoint. The the user experience is not streamlined and not friendly.
1: And, Apple, and it's Wiki- going to get so much worse. Like <laughs> over you know, the end of the year and, and into next year, we're getting the NBC Peacock thing. And like, there's all these other services. Uh, Quibi, there's all these things that are going to launch, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's amazing. And you just talking about the catalog for Disney and all the IP they have, it It makes me think, actually, a long-held thought I've had is there is a consumer brand that has a tremendous catalog, tremendous IP that's embedded in US nostalgia that's kind of underexploited and, and underutilized what they have. And it's, it's not a US company, but Nintendo is is one that I've, I've felt like long had the potential to be kind of a little brother to Disney. And I I just feel like they haven't fully utilized all the assets that they've created over time.
1: I totally agree. I mean, I've been harping on this for a few years at this point now, um, largely from the position of should Apple acquire Nintendo, right? It's a very provocative, provocative headline. And I'm not, I'm hardly the only one also like, you're obviously thinking about it. Many others have been thinking about it as well and written things about this. I, I do think, though, it's becoming more and more compelling over time, most recently with Apple launching the arcade service, right, which which is actually very good. It's the 4 dollars a month, a highly curated mobile gaming effort that they're doing, and it's very good, but I do think a way that can make it an absolute just mega, mega service would be if they had the Nintendo IP on it, right, and... I'm sure they're having discussions with Nintendo in that regard, but just bringing over some of the games. But imagine if they owned that IP and they could have it exclusively. I think that that makes that service an absolute no-brainer, both for nostalgic purpose, as you're mentioning. But Nintendo still makes fantastic games. Mm -hmm. I have the Switch. There are amazing games on there, amazing new games that they continue to make with the IP that they have. And they're still working on... And they have newer IP, too, that they do a good job with. And so I think that that makes sense from that perspective. The Disney side is also very interesting, and I wouldn't be shocked, given what Disney has done in the past, as we talked about acquiring different massive pools of IP. As you note, Nintendo is one of them, and one that that Disney could do unique things with in terms of films. Obviously, people have tried to make Nintendo-based films in the past that haven't worked so well. I think Mm -hmm. the Super Mario movie with John Leguizamo and Bob Haskins that (laughs) uh, was pretty awful back in the day but someone eventually will nail this it reminds me of the comic book movies right in the in the 80s too that that people tried to do and they were pretty bad and then they were pretty bad until they were amazing and then they were the biggest money makers in the world right right? and so feel like you can do something similar with some of the ip that nintendo has maybe you know maybe it's it's too aspirational to think that they can get up to the comic book level with superhero movies that we have now but i they can obviously do better than they have been doing and Disney would be the one to be able to, to pull that off from a cinematic perspective, that's for sure. And so then it becomes a question of, you know, why hasn't this happened before? There's a lot of talk of it's very hard to acquire Japanese companies, there's cultural reasons, you know, why it seems like it would be very hard to do. But I think, you know, over time, as it becomes more and more obvious that that's what should be done as Nintendo, as the video game industry morphs under Nintendo's feet, it's obviously happened a few times. They've been able to come back from what seemed like the brink a few times first with the Wii, and then you know now even with the Switch after sort of the Wii U is a disaster. and mm-hmm. But things are continuing to shift. We have Sony, Microsoft, Google all launching cloud gaming services, right? Can Nintendo, if that actually works, and it seems like there's compelling reasons to believe that will be, at least in some capacity, the future of gaming, can Nintendo compete in that? I don't know.
0: Well, to your earlier point, if there's one company that has the machine to leverage the value of assets and, and also get a lot of value out of them. It's it's Disney. But to switch gears a little bit. So, you know, I heard the announcement about Facebook acquiring Control Labs. So congrats on that. MG, why is this a, a good strategic buy for Facebook?
1: So Control Labs is one of the most interesting startups that certainly I've been, you know, associated with in, in recent years. And we talked about in the beginning, you know, the Quote, unquote, consumer, nebulous consumer. So this one is pretty far afield. It still has consumer elements to it, but it's basically, you know, hardware that's enabling a user potentially to be able to access what their brain intends them to do and sort of intercepting the easiest way to think about it is you know, we all have you know, we all have hands that, that we use that take directions from our brain in order to do various things, typing on a keyboard, playing a video game, doing surgeries, you know, all sorts of things. That The hand is the output mechanism of what's going on in your brain or, you know, the external world. Imagine if you could intercept the signal in front of it going to your hand. That's sort of what controls set out to do with it with their armband. Amazingly, they were able to do it. Obviously, that the team there is incredible. They have neuroscience backgrounds on top of tech backgrounds. Reardon, the CEO, actually was was you know is considered the father of Internet Explorer when it was at Microsoft. And so he has a very heavy tech tech background. Left Microsoft to go get his neuroscience degree, and then teamed up with a bunch of other neuroscientists to work on this problem. And again, amazing results. And so when you see the demo of this thing, and you see that you can basically manipulate what's on a screen without having to move your hands as you would if you were typing or if you were again using a controller it's just an amazing thing to behold and so i think facebook looked at that i think we all know what you know they have aspirations to do with oculus but then they have a lot of other things that they're working on it seems like internally with with different newfangled technologies because again you know they they have to to figure out what's next after the smartphone, because they don't own the smartphone platform, right? They've done a very good job being sort of the main app that the billion-user-plus service that people use on their smartphones. But at the end of the day, they don't control the device that everyone's using it on, and so they're beholden in some ways to those other companies that do. You know, I, I have to believe that they think, and everyone thinks, that innovation isn't dead with the smartphone. You know, you can make an argument that we might not get to the same scale that that we've gotten to with the smartphone, but. I think Facebook is very savvy in thinking about what is next. And obviously, they've, uh, like I mentioned, they've done a lot of stuff in VR. And it's, it seems like you know the timing hasn't been exactly right yet, but they're continuing to invest in it. Obviously, a lot of investment in AR. But then what do you do also on the, again, interface side of, of the equation and how do you interact with these things? And it's, it doesn't seem like it should just be a keyboard or a mouse as the old paradigm was back in the day. And so they're super savvy when they looked at control, I think.
0: Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. What an amazing company. Control Labs, unreal. You know, while we're talking about smartphones, you know, there's constantly things coming out about sort of the impact of constant stimulation and Constant content consumption and people just being wired to their phones, right? And even I'm noticing like all these tools that I use for productivity have made, whether they're on the phone or not, they've made me so much more productive and efficient, but it also means I'm doing less monotonous tasks, less repetitive tasks. And so I'm locked into much more strategically demanding tasks things on a regular basis, you know, get to the end of the day, pretty wiped out. And so just wondering for your general take, you know, how is all this tech and how is this constant stimulation and constant sort of mind occupying activity, you know, affecting people's creativity, uh, happiness, and is this an adverse net effect on, you know, the user public?
1: It's a good question. It's something I think about a lot, uh, certainly coming from a a creative sort of, you know, uh, on the writing side background, right? So I try to still uh, access the creative parts of my brain from time to time. um, But it's harder. It's harder than ever to do. Because as you know, like, there's just a million things pulling at you at any given second with notifications on the phone, with all these TV services launching, (laughs) with video games, everything else that we have out there. I think that it is a very fundamental question, you know, over the next decade for all of us. The thing that I go back to most recently, I have a uh, pretty young baby just about to turn one actually tomorrow. And hey, so congrats. I think, thank you. I think about her life as she grows up and, you know, in this world of always on devices, always connected to the internet. You know, I'm not that old, but I, I grew up in a time where that wasn't the case and I think now it's just going to be totally different and it seems to be accelerating as we go forward. So I, I think about like how trying to extrapolate out how her life will play out in the world in which we currently live. And in some ways, of course, it's impossible, but I want—I can't help but wonder if we actually start to see sort of a natural backlash amongst younger people and younger generations against some of the ways that we're interacting right now. And I think you already see this with some of the, you know, younger generations, maybe teenagers, or, you know, the generation just below that, in that, you know, there's sort of this feeling, maybe in some cases of animosity against, you know, parents always being on devices and sort of devices being viewed as sort of a bad thing in that regard, because they're sort of just taking up so much mind share of a parent's life from a child's perspective. And so, my wife and I certainly try to be mindful of that already, even though that she's our baby is so young. But I wouldn't be shocked if there is just again this natural sort of progression amongst young people to sort of correct the way that society has has basically rolled out over the past decade. Again, I think you know we can blame ourselves for that, but it's it's pretty hard to do because it's just there's this amazing technology uh, <laughs> that is in your fingertips. I mean, we have access to the entire world's information at all time, twenty four seven, in our pockets. That's incredible when you think about it. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. If I would have thought about that when I was a kid, it would have seemed impossible. If I would have thought about that twenty years ago, it would have seemed impossible. And now we have it and now everyone basically has it. And increasingly everyone on the planet is going to have that access to that as smartphones get cheaper and they and cell service becomes more and more fast cell service becomes more and more ubiquitous. Everyone's going to have access to that. And that's that's incredible. But again, there's downsides to that. And so I, I find it hard to like blame ourselves for taking full advantage of that incredible, you know, gift that, that we've been given in, in that regard. But I do think that, you know, we're starting to see people be more and more mindful about that, including some of the big companies, right? They're all everyone from Apple and Google on down are trying to launch things to to tell you more about how much you're using your device and trying to be more savvy about the way that they send out notifications and all those types of things.
0: Sure. Sure. You know, it kind of makes me wonder when the printing press came out and books became ubiquitous, you know, was there a a big backlash that kids are being Getting lost in books, right? Or when the phone came out, you know, are people getting distracted and by conversation, or when the TV came out, you know, are people becoming zombies to the TV? And <laughs> this is a whole new level, right? It's kind of more of a 24 four seven access to whatever you want <laughs> from a content standpoint. But it I I feel like we've seen this movie before.
1: I agree. And it's funny, my dad was actually just in town visiting ahead of the little one's birthday and he would note, like, he basically brought up at one point what he used to say to us when we were kids, which is like, you know, TV rots your brain. And so, you know, the notion of like, you know, you shouldn't be in front of the TV all the time. And now that seems quaint, right? In some ways, like TV services wish people were around the TV more as ratings <laughs> fall and it, and it seemed like it was going to go in the opposite direction. So I, I think you're right. Like, obviously, this is a this is a new, different beast. But in some ways, it, it harks back to the, the beast of yore, where there was television, there was radio, there was newspapers there, and there was books. And uh <laughs> One point, maybe there was cave drawings that uh, that you know people were getting a little bit too obsessed with and whatnot. So I think that you know history obviously repeats itself, but we have to be careful about the ways that just how quick these things can happen now and how ubiquitous all of this is. Because even with television, you know, like you had to be at home to be able to do that, and, and it just wasn't feasible to be at home twenty four seven. Whereas with a smartphone, you really do have it on you twenty four seven. How many people are suffering from insomnia because they're always just. Checking their phones at night. I'm sure it's a, mm-hmm. you know, certainly not a non-zero number, and so, so I think we have to be more mindful than ever. But there are certainly things to to take into account when you consider that a lot of these things are cyclical in nature. And again, I, that's why I think like there might be a natural sort of progression and backlash, if you want to call it, against using some of the technology in the ways that we've been using it right now.
0: Does mobile maintain its position as sort of the de facto? standard of interaction for people or do you think AR takes over you know within the next three to five years or you know what do you think that that time frame looks like
1: so this is the question that you know has come up basically since a few years post the iPhone launch right because the question certainly from an investor's investor perspective has to be you know what is the next platform to launch because then that will that will launch, you know, a thousand new interesting startups, and then, you know, that we potentially invest in. The reality of the situation is that obviously nothing has launched to the scale of the smartphone, and I think now most people would recognize that it's very likely that we're not going to see any new device that launches uh, that gets out there at the same scale that the smartphone is. It's just a unique device that has unique characteristics that's allowed it to expand to the base that it has and sort of, you know, we're at saturation, it seems like in, you know, the US and some of the other Western markets, and we're not there yet in some of the other countries. But eventually, it seems like we will get there. And it's a device that everyone in some regard will have at some point. And so it's really, obviously, it's the tallest order to be able to to think of anything else can get there. You hate to say, you know, never, but it does seem like it's just too tall of a task. The way I currently think about it is, Rather than it being, you know, VR, AR, you know, at at some point it was people talking about the watch, and and you know that's coming back into play because it's becoming more of a standalone product, at least you know the Apple Watch, right? You think that all of these things that basically form like what I would just call sort of computing in concert. So it's not just any one of these devices in particular that takes over the other one and replaces the other one anymore. It's all of these things being used together, and sort of I think Apple's been rather smart in the way that they've rolled out things like the Apple Watch and and rumors of them doing sort of an AR headset, both of those things potentially being tethered to your phone, I think is is both the smart way to roll them out because obviously you can rely on the computing power of the phone rather than having to, to bake things into smaller devices, which would a watch or, or potentially glasses be. But also because I do think that they're all going to interact with one another. I don't, again, think that it's going to be smart glasses replacing your smartphone or the Apple Watch replacing your smartphone. I think that they're all going to be used in different capacities at different parts of the day and will have their own use cases. We're seeing that already with the watch, with health use cases. I think you know, we'll see what, what happens with, with future eyewear products and, and anything else that comes out. Again, I think it's uh, this computing in concert notion where it's all of these devices together that interact with one, one another and sort of provide this this interesting data stream that is your computing life.
0: Love it. And maybe even Control Labs has a role to play in that, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean,
1: that, that was 100% part of the thesis behind that investment, that it's not just going to be one next new paradigm, a computing paradigm that takes over it's going to be a bunch of different ones and we're going to need ways to interact with those devices as well.
0: The more friction you can remove between intent and result, right? Whether it's steps or time or whatever. Um yep. I mean that's that's where technology is taking us. So
1: It's also just computing fading more into the background. We're seeing that already. I mean it's it's sort of hard to perceive because it's happening so gradually, but more and more there's just computing all around us that we don't really interact with directly, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah, we, we invest a lot here in, in IoT and that's central to, to our thesis as well. So switching gears here, MG, if you had to pick one writer, so this could be a venture investor, could be you know blogger, could be a writer at one of your, your former employers, who do you make sure you, you always read? Who's kind of one of your go-to folks that you're definitely going to consume what they're putting out?
1: Yeah, so I have a few people and it's I guess sector dependent. So like for Apple stuff, I obviously read John Gruber who's the the guy behind Daring Fireball. He seems to be, you know, continues to be sort of the one of the preeminent sort of thought leaders around what's going on with Apple itself and um, you know, just a very savvy guy in that regard. On the VC side of things, still very much read everything that Fred Wilson puts out there. You know, he's sort of the prototypical aspirational person who's been able to blog on a daily basis about, you know, the venture industry and Unreal. Um, I'm able to write from time to time, it would be amazing to be able to write on a daily basis like he does. (laughs) And then another one that sort of come into my orbit more recently is uh, a guy named Matt Levine who writes a a newsletter for Bloomberg under Bloomberg Opinions, which is just uh, very funny, but also pretty, I think pretty insightful about just money markets in general and finance. And so those are three things that I think about on sort of a daily basis that that I'm, I'm definitely reading.
0: Love it. Love it. So I, I gotta ask you this question. I if our research is correct, you're an Ohio native that went to Michigan, that found himself in Hollywood and and subsequently in, in San Francisco as a venture capitalist. Yep. But I believe that you have this passion for for Hollywood and screenplays and media and it it certainly comes through in your writing. So out of curiosity, you know, if you ever get around to writing that screenplay, what what do you write about?
1: Yeah, so I thought that's what I was going to be doing when I graduated college. I drove out to Los Angeles and started working at the lowest level, you know, PA jobs in Hollywood, getting people coffee and whatnot and working on B movies and things like that. And that's what I thought my career would be with the notion that eventually, yeah, I would like to be doing screenwriting again, going back to the, the writing idea. And so one day I would, as I know, like to write that screenplay. Obviously, I've tried. I've dabbled in it a bit, but haven't sort of gotten anything out there that I think would be uh, worthy of it. And I laid down that pen a long time ago. At this point, <laughs> but one day I do aspire to go back to that and figure out a way to to write in that capacity. And so, if I had to think about what I would write a screenplay about, I still I've always gravitated more around more on the science fiction side, but maybe less like less sort of Star Wars or Star Trek, and more just like. Uh, futuristic technology, unsurprisingly, given what I do these days, sort of along those lines, science fiction, along the lines of reality-based science fiction.
0: Awesome. Well, maybe I'll be interviewing you in a couple of years about your Hugo Award.
1: <laughs> oh, I imagine it will be more than a couple of years, but uh, I would, there's some some way to get back to that in the future.
0: Love it. MG, if we could cover any topic here on the program, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? Hmm.
1: Yeah, that was a good one. I didn't have a great answer. I do think that there's... I think that one thing that's sort of along your earlier lines of questioning, the changing face of VC, I think, is, is pretty interesting. So just the different uh, avenues that people take to get into the industry now you know back in the day of course it was just largely people from the finance industry right that sort of over time moved over to either from investment banking from wall street or you know something else that was tangential to that and then moved over to doing investments um in some cases obviously over time it's become wealthy individuals who have had success maybe in the tech space doing you know angel investments and then starting their own firms by that way but it's it's increasingly it seems like it's moved from what was like a you know an older person's game maybe because you had to have had the success and or accumulated some amount of capital to be able to do it. So now it almost feels like a younger person's game, which is interesting. And I think that there's a number of like newer VCs that you could talk to who would have interesting thoughts around why that's been the case. And I think the weird thing there is the jury might still be out in terms of is is that the right call. Right? <laughs> the problem is that the the industry is so slow moving, relatively speaking, and takes so long to to get to outcomes, to actually know, quote unquote, how you're doing, right? Yeah, And right. the person as an investor, but there's without question, even over my short time horizon doing investing, it's shifted so dramatically towards, you know, towards younger generations doing this and wanting to do this. And so, you know, people you could have on, on to talk about that, I think would be fascinating. You know, I, I happen to to live and be married to another VC who comes from the uh, the operating world. She worked at Google and Square after that and so she has interesting perspectives on it that's totally different than mine but you know we have a lot of friends now in in this industry for good or bad but they've come at it from different angles which i just think i find to be interesting
0: interesting perspective i i have not heard that before but it's it's very true mg what investor has influenced you most
1: and that's where I once again cut myself off because I will have to say my wife here, and that is true. So, she's a general <laughs> partner at Spark Capital right now. Before that, she was at Kleiner. but And before that, like I mentioned, she was an operator. But she just has a totally different mentality. First of all, because she does growth stage investing, so she you know, helps run Spark's growth stage investment. She has a totally different mentality coming at investments than I do but when people ask you know like how is that awkward like you know to have a, a spouse that does the same thing that you do and it's it's not at all in our case because again like we come at it i come at it from the early stage side she comes at it from the later stage side and so in in my view all of all of what we do is about data triangulation and figuring out you know different viewpoints and and trying to get to the ground truth of of what's actually happening both within a company within an industry within a sector and having someone in your home who you can spitball with and, and get different points of view on is, uh, is immensely helpful. And so, you know, obviously, we talk about what we do on a basically daily basis as much as uh, we'd like maybe to take a break. And so without question, she's the most influential for me.
0: Awesome. And finally, uh, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you?
1: Probably on Twitter. That's that's still the most fun, lightweight way to, to connect. I have a long hatred of email. <laughs> but you know, there there's ways to get in touch with me via the old school mechanisms, but I, I enjoy actually using Twitter and, and still find it find compelling conversations being had there. So I'm just at MG Siegler on Twitter. Well, MG,
0: thank you so much for doing this. I think uh I think you may be the most requested guest or or very close to it. So super happy we got a chance to go deep on some of these topics and also happy to appease the masses and and not get some in your requests. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much That's for doing same.
1: it. Yeah. Thank you. Man.
0: That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to overprepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us.